This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Okay, here we go. Stand by. Three, two, one. The thinking atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea. The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof. Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together for a more rational world. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Assume nothing. Question everything. And start... Thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. This is the audio from a recent presentation, a speech that I gave in Sarnia, Ontario, Canada. I was invited to speak to the Blue Water Atheist Humanist Convention. It was a great time. And so this is that particular presentation, something I've been touring with. There is a YouTube version with all the slides. And that YouTube link is in the description box of the show. I hope you enjoy. I'm so glad to be with you. The material that I'm doing, for lack of a better way of saying it, my material today, it's actually a discussion, an inner monologue that's been going on for years with me, and it's a topic I'm nervous about. I have given this speech in a few cities, and I keep going back to the hotel room, and I'm tweaking it and changing it, and I just want it to be right. What I'm about to present may not be right for you. It's simply a window into where I am at this moment. And the reason I want to share it is because I have a suspicion I am not the only one who's going through this, okay? Take it, leave it, hopefully you might be compelled by it. I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We have an intersection near 98th and Riverside in Tulsa. Not that you care, but I want to just let you know where it is. It's an actual place. There's a Google overhead shot. I'm not making this up, but it's an entrance to a toll booth where you pay up to drive on the highway. And there are uh, a couple of lanes. You've got what we call Pike Pass on the left. Uh, Texas calls it toll tag. I'm not sure what you call it, but we've got a little sensor. You drive underneath, you don't have to slow down. You're immediately and automatically billed and you just cruise on your way. But if you don't have the Pike Pass, we have the coin dispenser. So you have to shift through your pockets and the center console and you throw the coins in and then you can continue. So 
And Natalie and I are at this intersection all the time. Uh, most specifically because our favorite sushi place is there and because there's a pedicure place. Pedicures. Have you done the pedicures? <laughs> like, I used to mock Natalie, pedicure, are you shit? I'm not gonna go get a pedicure. And then finally, years and years and years ago, she talked me into it. I love pedicures. <laughs> I'm always bringing it up. Honey, we should go and let's go get it. Come on, let's go get pampered. They rub that sugar stuff on your feet. Oh my God, it's amazing. So, we're at 98th and Riverside. This is the entrance to the highway for us to get back home. And I am sitting there in the lane. I've got the Pike Pass and I notice there's a car in front of me and he stopped right under the frame, under the Pike Pass sign. And he was blocking it for the rest of us. It's obvious he'd made a mistake. He didn't have a pike pass, and he realized it. He was going to get fined if he continued on. They were going to photograph his license plate, and he was going to be hosed. So he hops out of the car, and he runs around to the other side, and he takes whatever change he had, and he throws it into the little hopper there. But he didn't have enough change. So he runs back to his car, and of course the line of vehicles is starting to really pile up behind me and I'm watching with sort of bemusement like this poor guy. And you can see he's fishing through the door and he's going through the center console and he's, oh, he's panicking. And then he runs back over and he starts throwing more money in until finally, finally, the red light turns green. Now, we've got vehicles going all the way to the end of the exit ramp, all the way around the curve, under the bridge, onto Riverside. There are a lot of cars and I can hear I can feel the irritation with these drivers. He was humiliated. The other drivers were irritated, possibly pissed, if we know how drivers think and behave. A final wave of apology, that universal, I'm so sorry, so sorry, so sorry, as he's running back to his car, hops behind the wheel, closes the door, and heads onto the highway at high speed, and I follow in right behind him. And as I'm cruising onto the highway, I had a moment. And I started to think to myself, what just happened? I thought about the road rage or potential road rage all around me. I could hear the other drivers in my head because I've done it myself. Come on, jeez, where did you learn to drive? The instructions are right there. It says Pike Pass on the left. Get off the road, you moron. <laughs> Anybody ever been like that behind the wheel when nobody's looking? No, no, of course not, no. What did that encounter cost me really? In the big picture, in the grand scheme, what did I have to be angry or even irritated about 90 seconds out of my day? He didn't intend to pick the wrong lane. He didn't intend to inconvenience the rest of us. He obviously screwed up and he knew it, but rather than not pay, he decided he was gonna stop right there and try to figure it out. He wanted to do the right thing. Beyond that, I knew what was going down. I had plenty of spare change in my own console. Why did I just sit there? Why, why didn't I jump out and help the guy? I was a spectator. I just watched it all play out. What if I had known him? If he'd been a friend or a family member, I wouldn't have just sat there. 
No, I'd have been all over it. Hey, hey, you, it's $1.25. You got to have one to here. Get in the car. I've got change. Go, go, go. And then I would have called him and we would have had a great laugh about it. But I would have been part of the solution for this person. This is the kind of thing I've been thinking about a lot lately. Why didn't I engage with that man? Because he was an unfamiliar to me. He was anonymous. He was not in my in group. He was both anyone and no one. And I began having deeper conversations about how all of this relates to my own evolution. I have evolved, we have all evolved with a tendency toward tribalism, in group, out group. The behavior and attitudes that stem from strong loyalty to one's own tribe or social group, tribalism. It's kind of an inward focused group consciousness. And so very often, an interest and promotion of our interest and our tribe's interests over all others. And this related to that, and it sort of bled into some of the other conversations I've been having and observations I've been having about in-grouping and out-grouping, because I'd been seeing so much of it. This was just another example. Tribes have real benefits in our primate past. Gathering and fortifying and reproducing and cooperating as tribes helped to keep us fed. It kept us safe. It kept us happy. Very often it kept us alive. Outsiders might be whatever, predators or conquerors. Going it alone out on the harsh African savanna, that was a recipe for struggle, starvation, even death. Banding together into cooperative tribes helped to ensure that we and our genes had a greater chance of survival. And our distrust of outsiders sort of grew out of that, part of this survival mechanism, a cost-benefit scenario, which actually, especially in our primate past, paid off specific genetic dividends to be distrustful of the other, to be dismissive, even violent, toward the outgroup, toward the unknown. We talk a lot about a type two error, which could be a danger to me and my tribe. Let's say I'm too generous. I see an unknown, an anonymous, some other. I'm too generous, I'm too accommodating, too sweet, too trusting, too welcoming. The risk factor goes up for me. Because if I open my doors, if I open my world, that unknown might be harmless, but also is just a few inches away from potentially removing me and my family from the gene pool entirely. The safer bet was the type one error, to assume the worst, push them back, cast them out, even attack and destroy them. Even if I'm wrong, sure, I mean, it was a bad call, it was bad judgment, but I pretty much guaranteed my survival and the survival of my genes, passing down my genetic line. My evolutionary fitness benefited even when I made the mistake, even when I went from reaction to overreaction. And we can see the utility of dehumanizing and destroying out groups. Now we flash forward to today, where we have moved from the world of ignorance, the world of the unknown, to the most globally connected world of the known. 
You want to know someone's face, voice, personality, intent, beliefs, background, politics, capabilities, etc.? Never been easier for us as human primates to see each other. But we have retained those evolved tribal tendencies and the sometimes instant othering of anything and anyone that is not in our personal orbit. And if you don't think we human primates still do this today, spend five minutes on Twitter. <laughs> this is a typical day on Twitter, is it not? So there I am, and I'm driving, and I'm home later in that day, and I'm just sort of reflecting on the whole thing, reflecting on how I had been treating the others in my life. And I began to ask other questions about the other interactions I'd had with the world. How often had I disconnected or dehumanized even in unhelpful ways, ways that were unfair to my fellow human beings as I declared myself higher, you know, better, more important, more enlightened, superior, certainly more evolved than those others out there. Was I actually like the Neanderthal? of 100,000 years ago, gawking and shouting and maybe throwing things at anything and everyone that triggered my primate nerve centers? And was my primate brain still sometimes firing like those of my ancestors? There was a Twitter user, his name was David. He posted this clip, and I think it sums up far too many exchanges on social media today. Atero, ¿qué opina usted del gobierno de Zapatero? Pues igual que yo. ¿Y qué opina usted? ¿Qué, qué opina usted? ¿Qué, ¿Qué opina usted del gobierno canal? ¿Y, de los, y de, los, de, los, de los ayuntamientos de la isla? Anybody else seeing this kind of thing? Oh, I'm gonna see I'm in a point position in the movement, right? In a lot of these conversations about religion and religious criticisms. And I get uh, the real honor of being privy to highly productive conversations that go like this. Fuck you, moron. No, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I have to wonder, have we evolved all that much, really? No, we protest, no. Battle lines must be drawn. A defiant stand must be taken. This wrong that has been done must be righted. And to accomplish this great moral justice, we must do this. <laughs> How often had my exchanges online begun like this? I started like this. Right off the bat with people I didn't really know. They just crossed my path and my sensibilities and I instantly cranked the volume up to 11. Is going zero to nuclear in a heartbeat really necessary or is it another form of that error we were talking about earlier where we just instantly go from reaction to overreaction, othering by instinct? I would start an argument on my phone and then I'd switch over to my office computer. I'd be editing a podcast or a video, and I'd certainly have to go check and see what's going on. Did they comment on what I said? Oh, they commented. Well, I'm not going to let that stand. I'm going to have to reply to that. So now I go back, but then I'm back over here at the kitchen table where I've got the laptop, and I'm sitting there eating lunch, but, you know, I can't stand it. I mean, I know they've already replied by now because they've, they've replied five times earlier, and I, I know they said, I've got to go find out. And then I go back to the office computer. At the end of the day, Natalie and I are propped up in bed 
right? I've got the pillows up, I got the dogs in my lap, I'm sitting there and I'm still on my phone. I'm still there over and over. Sometimes I would waste the whole day on these exchanges. I was becoming hooked. And I wonder if I was becoming hooked on outrage. Was I the misery that was becoming addicted to the company of the miserable? Even if I wasn't fighting myself, I was this guy. Me at 3 a.m. reading all 388 comments of two strangers arguing on Facebook. It's a spectator sport and it's always on, right? It's always on. Natalie could always tell when I've been fighting on the internet. I'm an activist by nature. I'm a crusader. She knows this is my temperament. So I get sucked in really, really easily. So anyway, she'd be downstairs. I'd come down the stairs and she would look up and see my face and my whole disposition, as hard as nails, and she would just know. She'd be like, uh, honey? Honey, you've been fighting on Facebook again? And I would tell her no, but my face gave me away. Yeah, okay, I was arguing. Somebody was spreading misinformation. Somebody was being hateful. Somebody was just awful. And so I had to engage my righteous keyboard to vanquish the foe. I had to chuckle at this meme I saw online. It says, wow, that internet argument completely changed my fundamental belief system, said no one ever. <laughs> now, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there are many exceptions. I have seen online exchanges change minds. I think that's overreach, but you get the spirit of where this is going. I'm not saying social media can't be an important arena for expressing and exchanging ideas. Hell, half the stuff I do is broadcast out to social media or via social media. But in my own life, how often had I told myself that my little 30-second opinion tweet was actual activism? Was it instead just slacktivism? I was supporting a political or social cause with social media or online petitions characterized as involving very little effort or commitment. Was I a slacktivist? I, I wasn't calling my Congress people. I wasn't engaging face to face, eye to eye, voice to voice in a meaningful way. I wasn't interacting with the world in a healthy manner. I was just tweeting, a tweet and post and comment and snark and rage. And I would tell myself that out of the billions of social media accounts out there, mine, my account, my post, with all of its great wisdom, could be heard above the white noise. Thank you for your service, Seth Andrews, you internet keyboard warrior. The righteous cause has been defended. The enemy was vanquished on the internet, and oh, it feels so good to win. <laughs> This is how we feel when we win. Feel the power, feel the rush, feel the satisfaction. Eh, even if I overreacted a little bit, you know, come on. Even if I overdid it, it's sure better than what they were doing. Sure better than not doing it. I'd rather do too much than not enough. No matter how awful I might have behaved, trust me, it's nothing compared to how awful they are. So I had this ready excuse in my pocket for anything I ever said and did. Ah, you know, they're a lot worse. I mean, it's all relative. Come on, if it's all relative, then I'm, I'm the hero of my story. How convenient. 
Our brains get high on feeling superior. We get that kick of dopamine with the illusions of grandeur. Had I become a superiority addict, an argument addict, constantly going back for another hit and another hit and another hit, then I would rally my online community to back me up. I'd just throw that bait out there and I'd watch it happen. You know, the rush of validation. Oh, that's a great reply. Oh, what a great retort. Oh, that's super clever, devastating. You know what? I'm going to have to jump in on that. I'm going to share that, retweet that. I'm going to screenshot, make a meme, blah, blah, blah. And then finally, someone gets so fed up that they block me. I'm going to screen capture the block and post the screen cap that said they blocked me. Now they really lost. Now I'm really changing the world. Now I look even smarter. Psychologist and friend uh, Dr. Valerie Tirico posted uh, a statement by someone whose name I, I don't really know. I'm not familiar with this person, but I like the sentiment of what they said. And I'm just going to share it at face value here because I think, it, uh, I think it strikes a little too close to home for a guy like me. Before social media, people were often judged by their deeds. Now they're mostly judged by their opinions. Being good requires no kindness, only the right memes and hashtags. And those revered as saints need no heart of gold, only a silver tongue and brazen nature. Ouch. Ouch. I have to admit, I've enjoyed that feeling of being deemed worthy because I posted the right thing with a hashtag and a big helping of snark and sarcasm, and I got paid for that. I felt the endorphins, but did my good post mean that I was a good person? Was I virtuous? Was I signaling virtue? Both? Something else? What was going on? How often had I got suckered in by the trolls? And there are so many of them out there. Some malcontent with too much time on their hands, aching for someone like me to come along looking to make trouble, hoping I would get lured into the trap, smirking as I spend hours and hours focusing in on the inflammatory things they said, comment, reply, comment, reply. Sometimes it would go on for days. These people were acting in bad faith. They were desperate for the currency of my time and attention and oxygen, and I paid it dearly. I paid them off. I was giving them what they wanted. Free energy, attention, validation in ways that I began to see personally harmful to me. Beyond all of that, and this is the larger point I'm trying to, to make here. What was happening to my heart? I felt myself beginning to change. I could feel my heart hardening over, turning to stone. If you'll, I mean, it sounds really melodramatic when I say it that way, but I just felt like it was all scar tissue. I was less and less I was seeing humanity as human. My empathy centers began to shut down. In some ways, I felt like I was just hardening over. It was just calloused about everything. I'm going to tell you a story. This is a true story. It gives me no joy or pleasure to share it. I'm humiliated by it, but it is an example of where I am, and I feel like it helps to demonstrate the point I'm trying to make, so I'm going to share it here. I used to be a video producer before I was a full-time activist, and I traveled almost every weekend to different cities, and we would shoot video for clients, bring the footage back home, and edit it. So I traveled a lot even before I was an activist. And I was on a trip going through, I believe it was the Houston airport, this was 
I don't know how many years ago it was. And um, I came up the escalator, and at the top of the escalator, there was kind of a platform area. And I looked over and I saw a bunch of commotion, and there was a guy laying on the ground who was surrounded by paramedics. This is not him, this is a stock photo. I did not snap a photo to bring here to show all of you, okay? This is a stock image to help me tell the story. But he's lying on the ground incapacitated and he's surrounded by paramedics. I don't know why I did this. What was my first reaction? Reached in my pocket and I grabbed my cell phone. I started to take video. I gotta document this, holy cow. And one of the paramedics looked up and saw me and she yelled at me, hey, stop it. And it's like lightning struck me. And I immediately threw my phone back in my pocket and I said, I'm sorry. And I walked off as quickly as I could. I wasn't going to put this on the internet. I don't know why I was shooting it. Was I going to send it to Natalie? Holy shit, you just should have seen what happened at the airport today. I, I, I don't know. But my first instinct was to just sit there and record. I was a voyeur looking at an impersonal person. I couldn't see his face. I didn't know who he was, sure. But why didn't I think first about his privacy or his well-being? Now, why did someone else have to call me out for doing something awful? What are you doing? How did you get to this place in your life, Seth? I was amusing my brain with the plight of an anonymous other. And when I walked away from that experience, I was so ashamed. My face was flushed. I'm sure it was red. I thought about it the entire rest of the weekend. I think about it even now. How had I gotten there? How did I become so calloused over? so closed off, so unconcerned about my fellow human beings. Did he have a heart attack? Did he have a stroke? Did he have an aneurysm? What if I'd known him? Would I have sat there and documented with a bemused look on my face? I'd have rushed over there. Are you okay? Is there anything I can do? Is there any loved one I need to contact? How can I help? He was a human brother, a living being in the midst of personal trauma, and I was gawking at that person like I gawked at all those accident videos on YouTube. This is where I was in my heart. The same kind of dispassionate distance and othering I had been committing elsewhere in my life, from the toll booth encounter to other places. Now, I'm not saying tribalism can't have a really good side, because I think it does. This room is a great example. As someone who is not hugely close to his hyper-religious family, I feel a sense of community and family here. You are my tribe. This is a meeting of my people. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, I get the, I get the community aspects of being an in-group, and I welcome that. I think there are many healthy expressions of that. Family, community, tribal bonds, shared goals, sharing life, good stuff. And we see tribes everywhere we look. I mean, everywhere. In my home state of Oklahoma, we have a football rivalry. Oklahoma University versus Oklahoma State University. Football's a religion in my state. It is a religion. And this big rivalry, they play one major game every season. It's so contentious, they have a name for it. They call it Bedlam. You going to the Bedlam game this year? 
People fly the flags and wear the colors and have the logos and paint their bodies in either red or orange, right? They are warring factions, tribes opposed, unless one of my Oklahoma tribes takes on our neighboring Texas football team. Then our rival tribes band together as the larger Oklahoma tribe against those evil Texans. I wanted to bring an example for you. <laughs> Little Canadian example for you, right? Hockey! Are you the Toronto tribe? Are you the Montreal tribe? This is a contentious rivalry, if I'm to understand. Yes, yes. Opposing camps, destroying each other on the ice rink, unless an American team <laughs> comes in. Then you Canadians band together against the foreign enemy. There's not going to be a tribal war in this room, is there? Because I got... Here's another great example of tribalism, and this is just fun. Your band sucks, man. What's your favorite kind of music? And somebody tells you, and you're like, oh, that sucks. I saw this growing up. It was rock versus disco. Disco sucks, man. Disco's awesome. Rock sucks. Now it's alternative rock versus classic rock versus indie rock versus heavy metal versus what? I mean, everybody's got an opinion about their personal preference, but then it gets really hot. Like, yeah, how can you like that? How can you like country music? Yeah, it's just noise. It's not even music. Oh, my God, you haven't listened to the right country music. Rock music really sucks, blah, blah, blah. My tribe is superior. Your tribe sucks, and that's just the way it is. You want to see another example? of tribalism in pop culture, watch this debate go down. DC versus Marvel. Oh my God. People start conversations like, are you a DC person or are you a Marvel person? Already they believe it's an either or scenario. Like you can't enjoy both franchises. You have to at least prefer one over the other. What is your tribal symbol? Who is your group? Who do you align with? Of course, political parties are nothing if not tribalism in the United States. The Democrats and the Republicans pretty much own the day, and I think it's often very necessary. I am an atheist coming out of Fox News conservative Christianity. I'm also a now proud humanist liberal. Uh, I align with the Democratic Party, not because I love the Democratic Party, but because I am strategically aligning to a party that more represents my values when it comes to things like right to die issues, the right to choose, legalization of drugs, foreign policy, health care, etc. Time and time again, it is the Democratic Party more often that aligns with my value system, and that's where my tribal line is drawn. But still tribalism. What are nations if not tribes? We're the home country. Those are them foreign countries. And I think national pride can have its utility. The difference, I think, between patriotism and blind nationalism, I can love my country and want to see it achieve its best version of itself while still criticizing and condemning the injustices that I see. You can love your country, but this whole my tribe is superior simply because and all others are inferior, that's a whole different ball game. Nations wave their tribal standards. National flags, what are they if not a declaration of tribal territory? 
religions of the world. Of course they're tribes. I'm not telling you anything. These tribes have their communities, leaders, ideologies, beliefs, codes of conduct. And then within each individual religion, you can see the sub-tribes. In just the United Southern States, we've got Baptist Pentecostal down here. We've got um, Western states that lean a little more toward Catholicism. Methodists will dominate the middle of the country more often. Lutherans, Episcopalians, and Catholics, you'll see more of them up north. You can even see splinter tribes within the splinter tribes, the Baptists. See, the Baptists have been fighting with each other since there have been Baptists. Are you a Southern Baptist? Are you an independent or a free will, a reformed or full gospel? There are hundreds upon hundreds of different Baptists under the Baptist label. Tribes within tribes within tribes, all warring with each other about who is right and who is better. Religious tribes oppose atheist tribes. And don't think atheists are immune from this kind of thing either. This is a human tendency, and atheists are very, very human. I logged on, I guess it's been a few months, and I saw this little argument go down. Well, I'm an atheist. Well, are you uh, an agnostic atheist, or are you, uh, are you agnostic, or are you an agnostic atheist? Or, well, I'm an, I think I'm more of a Gnostic atheist. Well, you can't be a Gnostic atheist. Are you a new atheist? Or are you, are you anti-theist or simply a non-theist? The argument went on for days. It became contentious. People were insulting each other. I think some people may have unfriended other people over this label. <laughs> I couldn't believe it was going on. You want to talk about this stuff in a philosophical way? Fine. That's water cooler conversation. I think labels can have benefits and uses, but to, to divide as human beings over this unbelievably petty bullshit, and we do it all the time, religious and non-religious alike. And everything kicks us into freaking orbit. Everything. I could go on social media right now and I could post one sentence about any of these hot button issues right now. Race, Trump, social justice, trans rights, veganism, guns. Give it six minutes. And what happens in the comment section? It immediately devolves. It immediately devolves into screaming and insult and labeling and name calling and vitriol and rage and insanity. How often had I been guilty of that kind of keyboard mashing, snarking, name calling, hashtagging, shout down, blowtorch that produced a ton of heat, but very little actual light? And who were these people I was engaging? How often had I simply reduced three-dimensional people down to a, a cardboard cutout, something that was easy to kick over, right? If I reduce them to one dimension, it's a whole lot easier to destroy them. There's great utility in dehumanizing the outgroups, the others, our adversaries. We strip away their humanity. We draw them in one or two dimensions. It makes them a whole lot easier to brand and dismiss with a blink. When I was a devout evangelical Christian, I knew nothing about Muslims. Never read the Koran. I knew no Muslims. I knew nothing about the Muslim faith. The only time I ever heard about Muslims and Islam was when there was a terrorist attack somewhere in the world. 
that bled into my Fox News feed or whatever. And I was like, in my brain, connecting then, Muslim equals terrorist. Binary thinking. In my tragically binary brain, I had not done any proper homework. I hadn't shown any empathy. I hadn't gotten into what Islam is. I, if I had, I would have come to the easy to see realization that the vast, vast, vast majority of the people who are actually oppressed by radical Islam are themselves Muslims. And that the vast, vast, vast majority of practicing Muslims are peace-loving, beautiful people who deserve a hell of a lot better. Back to political parties. In the United States right now, if someone finds out I'm a Democrat, especially among the evangelical MAGA types, right, the Christian theocrats, the Christian nationalist types, I'm not just someone who disagrees with the Republicans politically and philosophically about the issues of the day. No, no. No, no. The Democrats are evil. One in five Americans right now believes at least some part of a QAnon conspiracy theory, including the belief that the Democratic Party is demonic and that Democrats, especially at the high level, are part of a deep state conspiracy to install a satanic regime. High level Democrats like Hillary Clinton actually engaging in demon worshiping, pedophilia and child trafficking out of the basement of a Washington pizza parlor so that they can extract and even drink the blood of children for the purposes of using adrenochrome to develop a fountain of youth serum so they can live together forever and become gods and what the fuck? <laughs> what? What century is this? But we see the utility, right? It's a whole lot easier for them to declare Christian jihad against me if I'm not a flesh and blood human being who is good and has values and might have a solid argument. Someone to be engaged as part of the human condition. No, no. What you do is you declare me evil. I'm in league with Lucifer. And then you announce it's a holy war. And your righteous army then can defeat me because I must be crushed. I've seen atheists do this to Christians. There's a thinking among some, someone identifies as a Christian. They say, well, I'm a Christian, even if they're the most casual Christian. I believe in Jesus. I, they don't know anything about the New Testament Christ, but they have an idea of Christ and they hold to, to love and charity and goodness and, you know, help the poor and all those beautiful things, right? Well, there's a thinking that if someone even identifies as a Christian, then they are now under the umbrella of the Christian nationalists, the radicals. Christian nationalism is infected with racism. So now they are aligned with white Christian nationals, those bigots and racists who were a part of the assault on democracy January 6th in the United States on the U.S. Capitol, domestic terrorism carried out in the name of Donald Trump and Jesus Christ, who many consider to be on equal footing when it comes to authority, right? All Republicans are then Nazis. All Christians are Christo-fascists. I've heard many of my fellow atheists say shit like this, and it makes me crazy. 
Now, already the binary thinkers and the nuance-free knee-jerkers are protesting Seth Andrews doesn't think the Republican Party is infected with Christian white supremacy. Did I say that? Did I even imply that? Not remotely. I am convinced the 21st century GOP has a religious racist cancer. I'm pissed off like you are. I'm terrified at these white Christian jihadists. Do they represent all Christians, everybody who calls themselves a Christian? Is that fair if you and I are to be advocates for fairness and the truth? What about this guy? I love this guy. He's a Christian pastor. His name is John Pavlovitz. Yeah, he and I disagree about theology. He has a really soft interpretation of Jesus in the Bible. He's essentially sort of molded his own Christian faith so that it's not judgmental. Okay, fine, I'll take that. Read anything he posts, and he tweets like 12 times a day. He is just as horrified as you and I are about LGBT discrimination. He condemns the insurrection. He supports state church separation. He loves people. He's a Christian. He and I share our values. We have so much more in common than we ever had in disagreement. I interviewed this person on the show a few months ago, Dr. Kristen Dumay, and she condemns white evangelical Christian nationalists who have splintered the United States. She and I agree. It's toxic. It's unconstitutional. And it's morally wrong. She's a believer. She's a theology professor. She's my friend and ally. There's an organization called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. A diverse assembly of reverends, pastors, bishops, and religious leaders. They're religious... Some are even Republicans, but they are also part of a resistance, battling alongside us against white American theocracy, and they agree that any God worth his salt wouldn't even need a Christian nation. They're all about the same thing we're about, a private exercise of faith or no faith, not the government as a church. In terms of my values and my desire to protect the establishment clause of the Constitution, these people aren't my enemies. They're on my team. They're allies, helpers, friends. Are they stupid? Are they awful? Are they evil? Are they Nazis? Are they Christo-fascists? Or, despite our theological disagreements, are they good people who deserve better now, again, I'm not saying both parties are equal. I don't see our assessments about religious doctrines as equally reasonable. But don't sell me the claim that roughly 200 million professing American Christians are all Bible-banging, jihadist, Nazi, Christo-fascists. They're people, often beautiful, wonderful, kind, loving, charitable, generous people. And yet my activated and enraged primate brain so often has little room for these kinds of considerations. I become reductive and simplistic. I want to label complex people and ideas. All, nothing, us, them, insider, outsider, A, B, yes, no, black, white, good, evil, human, inhuman. The military knows the utility of dehumanizing the enemy. When they train their soldiers, right? Bombing, knifing, shooting an inhuman thing is a hell of a lot easier than killing a flesh and blood human being. 
I interviewed this gentleman. His name is John Musgrave, Vietnam veteran. He was featured in Ken Burns' documentary series called The Vietnam War. He was horribly wounded in Vietnam. But before he was wounded, he told the story about when he first killed his first NVA soldier. He shot him and watched him die right in front of him. And John Musgrave was devastated. It, it caught him at the core of his humanity. He, he couldn't deal. I think it's how any of us would feel. And he said this, these are his words, but after seeing one of his own men step on a landmine, he made a deal with the devil. I said, I will never kill another human being as long as I'm in Vietnam. However, I will waste as many gooks as I can find. I'll wax as many dinks as I can find. I'll smoke as many zips as I can find, but I ain't gonna kill anybody. Turn a subject into an object. It's racism 101. Turn a subject into an object. Make them easier to destroy. Human beings have been doing this to each other since forever. Put them in a box, crush the box. I am embarrassed by how often I have been guilty of this. I've seen tribes turn on their own for committing some crime of ideological impurity. You don't walk in lockstep, you don't line up 100%, you violate some membership rule. Even 95% agreement is still 5% betrayal. We can't have that. We see in-group pressuring upon our own and potential Punitive measures, excommunication, even vilification for the most minor of perceived infractions. I did an interview in 2021 with the clinical psychologist, Dr. Hector Garcia. We talked about tribalism from within and without, and he had some interesting things to say about these in-group punitive measures. So um, a biological anthropologist out of Harvard uh, named Richard Rangham wrote an amazing book called... Uh, the goodness paradox, where he makes a good case for the idea that um, one of the things that helped humans be domesticated, in a sense, be more, um, more peaceable with one another, is that we policed our own tribes and murdered people who got out of hand, who were too aggressive. Um, and that went along for such a long time um, that uh, that also contributed to a fear that we have of our own group. And it wasn't just those who, who were overly aggressive for other infractions, for just not, not towing the line of the, of the tribe, for not um, any, any kind of social deviance could put you at risk. Um, the witch hunts of our history, you could say. I have watched in horror as people come to a point of disagreement and even contention over some issue and they don't call each other up. Hey, look, I, uh, I have some concerns. Can we talk over coffee? Do you have a few minutes? Can we talk on the phone? Can we FaceTime? They don't send a good faith email or reach out in goodwill with a fellow human being and try to figure it out, to gauge intent, to explore the issues, to try to change minds, maybe even their own if they're wrong not allowing that good people can sometimes be wrong. I mean, very wrong. Now your first move is to log on to Twitter and blowtorch the other side to absolute ash. There's this thinking among many that if you're wrong, you're bad, and if you're bad, you're trash. 
Not that there aren't horrible people who deserve our justifiable anger and strong opposition. Yes, there are outrageous things going on, and outrage is the appropriate response. Yes, in the battle for human rights, justice, truth, and goodness, there are hard targets. There are some people who are legitimate, influential, destructive agents of jaw-dropping awfulness, and they must be countered and fought and stopped and defeated. Yes, I'm afraid even now after I've said that, that someone eager to misunderstand will not have heard me. Yes, sometimes you do have to declare a legitimate enemy and you have to release the Kraken. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you got to release the Kraken. I don't tolerate everything on my own pages. You ever blocked somebody who was being awful and they said, well, I guess you're a fan of censorship, aren't you? Don't like free speech. Like they have the permission to come in and take a shit in our living room and we have to allow them to hang around and sit on the furniture. Absolutely not, right? I've unfriended people over words and behaviors. I've set and enforced boundaries. I think that's a healthy thing. Were there a few occasions where I might have acted rashly or been too quick on the trigger? Did I ever make things worse with how I handled it? When did I miss an opportunity? How often had I sacrificed thoughtfulness and nuance and even kindness on the altar of extremism. And I oppose extremism in my own camp for the same reason I oppose it in other camps. We're all fallible. We can all get caught up in the moment and we are all potentially as human beings guilty of bias, oversimplifying, knee-jerking, losing perspective, jumping from reaction to overreaction. Was I an online arsonist? Had I been torching everybody who simply didn't pass my little tests? Was I giving attention to the wrong people? Was I giving the wrong kind of attention to the right people? Had I become addicted to being enraged? Outrage so often can be a great motivator, so necessary. It's also a drug. We get high on outrage. We get the rush. The amygdala fires up. The adrenaline flows. The heart pumps. The mind races. We get that illusion of strength and superiority and power. And perhaps most critically, outrage is absolutely free. 24-7, any minute, any day, I can get my hit. Turning my own humanity to stone in the process. My outrage was actually causing my own heart to turn to scar tissue because I didn't have any balance or perspective. How about the people who have uh, decided to monetize our outrage? They know where our buttons are. Sometimes they place them there. They push them. We click. They get paid. We're paying them off by overreacting. Did you read that article in the Washington Post about Facebook posts specifically targeting our outrage centers? And the outrage-related post enjoyed five times the engagement of everything else online. Dr. Arthur Brooks is a social scientist and a contributor to the New York Times. He wrote an article called Our Culture of Contempt, and he talked about this term called motive attribution asymmetry. Each side thinks it is driven by benevolence, the other is evil and motivated by hatred, and is therefore an enemy with whom one cannot negotiate or compromise. 
We are righteous and reasonable. They are wicked, a waste of breath, a lost cause. They must be crushed because you cannot reason with them. I'm thinking of one guy right now. Hugely frustrating. Christian nationalist, Bible thumper, anti-LGBT rights, anti-reproductive choice. He was oblivious to racial discrimination issues. Pro-death penalty, anti-death with dignity. He distrusted science and scientists. He didn't know any atheists, didn't want to know them because he thought they were all evil and going to hell because they're in league with the devil. Tremendously frustrating guy. You know who that guy was? Me. 25 years ago. Was I a horrible person? Was I evil? Was I a Christo-fascist? Or was I just a naive and wrong-headed young man who promoted bad ideas while at the same time being a victim of bad ideas? I was a victim of bad ideas, brainwashed from my earliest memories, reinforced by family and culture. What if people had written me off? What if I had logged on? What if that Seth had logged on to Twitter this morning? Would I have been set on fire, my character, my reputation, my whole life on fire? Would they have just shredded me, the sort of call-out culture, the slacktivist culture that just decided I was subhuman? Where would I be today? Would I have continued my journey out of the faith? I mean, I don't think I would have ever been a fundamentalist again, but I'll tell you what, if I had come out and felt completely unsafe in the space of non-believers or religious critics, if I'd felt like I did, there was no quarter and they were coming after me, the arsonists were going to burn me to the ground, I might at least be in the outer membrane of my former faith, the most casual of casual Christians, because at least there I had family and community and comfort and safety where I wasn't being dehumanized. At least they treated me like a human being when I called myself a Christian. I wonder... I am thankful for those who did see me in three dimensions, who took time for me, they talked to me, they engaged, they disagreed with me, they challenged me, they weren't weak, they were strong, but they were human, and so was I. They didn't cram me into a box and crush the box. They didn't treat me like a bad person, they just realized I had some bad ideas, I was wrong about some stuff. And they were patient as I slowly began to emerge into better ideas. I've made a little checklist you can take this or leave it. It's something that I've been working on, and man, it is hard. This is difficult for me because I'm a fighter. I love a good scrap. I love to get into it. It drives my wife crazy, but I've got a checklist that I've got that I try to roll through before I engage, especially online. How's my mindset today? Am I already in the red zone? Bad day? Bad mood? Is this the best time to start engaging an interlocutor? <laughs> Legit question, because if I'm in a bad frame of mind, maybe I should return a little later. Who am I dealing with? Have I taken even 10 seconds to find out who this person is that I am engaging? Are they operating in good or bad faith? This is huge. I'm amazed at how often I see atheists and atheist activists waste precious time, energy, and oxygen on people who weren't acting in good faith to begin with. How much of your precious time do they deserve? This is related as well. Am I being manipulated? Does somebody want me to click so they can get ad revenue or some other benefit? Am I leading with escalatory language? Did I start with, what the hell is wrong with you, you moron? 
and what do I expect that response to produce? I'm not saying we never say it, but am I leading with a response that is guaranteed not to find any resolution? I save my snark for the ideas. I save my snark for the franchise players. I do like my snark, but I'll tell you, I handle treating the Bible with ridicule and mockery a whole lot different than I treat a believer in the Bible. One-on-one exchange with a Bible believer, I do not use ridicule and mockery because nothing will come out of it except further frustration. Who else is watching? You ever watch a debate? Somebody's on stage, religious, atheist. You ever see one of those people say, you know, now that we've had this debate, I realize I'm totally wrong about my entire position and I'm gonna reverse myself and I'm gonna, in fact, let's all go have coffee, debate over, thanks for coming, refunds at the door. Never happens. What are those debates about? You see both sets of ideas presented so that people who are in the audience and online watching from a position of safety where they do not feel personally attacked, they can hear the ideas presented. A debate changed my life. I was watching Hitch debate a rabbi. He wasn't coming after me. I didn't feel attacked. I was watching in safety. I was watching the ideas come down. There may be utility in engaging someone, even someone who might not be necessarily a good faith agent, depending on who else is watching. What is my goal? How often have I not even considered what I want to come out? I'll just start typing. What the fuck? I'll just start typing. What's the matter with that person? I go, I have no idea what I wanted to get out of it. Well, that seems like a pretty rudimentary question. What is it I want to accomplish with all this stuff? Am I really changing anything? Is this how we change the world when the hundreds upon hundreds of comments and replies, all of it finally winds down and we move on to the next piece of outrage? What did I really accomplish? Did anybody evolve their thinking or did I just spend three days screaming into the white noise? And finally, to come full circle, how much of my approach was insular, part of my evolved primate brain? Had I othered my interlocutor in an unhealthy way? Were they genuinely awful or had I simply declared them awful? Had I outgrouped them in a way that guaranteed we'd never even have an opportunity to engage our shared humanity? Did I see a person or a caricature of a person? Maybe even a non-person. I've come in my own heart to realize that maybe not all the others in this world deserve to be treated in the way that I treated them. Maybe I need to do a better job of seeking out opportunities to get out of my freaking chair and to extend a helping hand in good faith and to try to be an agent of help and rescue when somebody else gets it wrong. I'll bet this room is loaded with stories of people who were in a bad spot, had bad ideas, really bad ideas, had an awful idea about something and you were helped to higher ground by someone like you or someone who wanted to help you and now you want to do the same thing for other people. Sometimes in life, yes, we have to burn a bridge, but whenever possible it feels so much better to build one. Sometimes we do have to curse the darkness, but it's so much more fulfilling to shine some light. Sometimes you have to crush the enemy, but it's so much more rewarding to develop an ally. I agree with Ingersoll. I think we rise by lifting others. I will never surrender my snark, my friends. 
I will never surrender my snark. But you know, when it's possible, if it's possible, whenever and wherever, I think we could all do a better job of trying to provide the example of mature, measured strength and strategy and empathy and compassion and love that represent the kind of humanity that we want to see in the world and the kind of future that we want to build. And finally, I hope we can look at each other and be encouraged. Here's the upside. The one thing about outrage, the fact that we often will jump headfirst into the outrage pool, I think the one upside is, I think for a great many of us, it means we care. The reason we're upset, the reason we're enraged, the reason we just drives us crazy is because we give a shit. We care. It matters. That's huge. That's a positive. That's something good we can take away. We're desperate to see humanism and humanity win the day. I'd like to leave you with a quote about the people who are engaged and who do care. We had written a blog a while back called An Open Letter to Those Who Still Give a Damn. The blog written by my humanist ally, Pastor John Pavlovitz, who says, You are in good company, so be encouraged. Fight like hell to keep your heart soft, even while so many people have become hardened. Yes, the world is upside down right now, but we can make it right, one beautiful act of decency at a time. Get some rest and keep going. The world needs people like you. Blessed are the damn givers, for they will right side the world. Thank you all so very much for having me. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring The Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.